Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Thanks as always to Integral Life for broadcasting this live on the Integral Live platform. And I would also remind you that I have all of my stuff, Daily Evolver stuff for many years posted on my personal site, dailyevolver.com. So you can go in there and see all the archives if you're so inclined. All right, today I want to, actually let me just start in because I think there's a really nice entree into this whole subject. And it's a advice column. I'm kind of a uh, addict of advice, advice columns. I go right to the Dear Amy column in the Boulder paper every morning. That's first thing. And, uh, you know, I'm addicted to the relationship site on Reddit. And I just love hearing people's uh, problems and experiences. And one of my favorite advice columnists is a guy named Philip Galanes. And he is the author of the Social Cues column, which is in the New York Times Sunday um, style section every, every week. Let me just read from one of his columns that I think really sums up the sort of integral fragrance of, of, of what he does. So he gets this letter uh, from this teenage boy, and, and, and the boy writes, For four years, my family's Sunday breakfast routine has been quizzing each other about social cues, his column, and we've agreed to follow your advice. I am 14. My brother is 13. We were hanging out with friends and started shouting random things about each other. I said, my brother is adopted. He is. Later, he told my parents that I had hurt his feelings. But that doesn't make sense. I was just stating a fact, like as if I'd said his eyes were blue. I don't think I have to apologize. Do you? And Galanes responds, Here's something we may have in common, Gabe, and Gabe is the kid's name. Here's something we may have in common, Gabe. A certain slowness to admit we're wrong, accompanied by the digging in of heels. I respect your appeal to logic, but you already know that not all facts are equal. It may also be factual to point out that a friend is ugly or stinks at Minecraft, but you wouldn't do that. It would make him feel bad. The same with your brother. It's true that he's adopted, but it's probably complicated for him. I bet he loves being part of your family, but thinking about his birth parents and how he ended up with you may make him feel sad sometimes, and you announcing it to a gang of kids would sting. My hunch is that you know this now, but may not have known it when you were teasing with your pals. It can be hard to find that line when you're kidding around. My advice, try to put yourself in other people's shoes. How would you feel in their place if they said what you were about to say? And when people tell you, you hurt my feelings, believe them. It can be a hard thing to admit. So apologize. Then after you tell your brother you're sorry and mean it, forgive yourself too. We all make mistakes. And I love that letter and response. And to me, it's just a beautiful integral transmission. And I point out the elegance with which Galanes changes perspectives. 
uh, the boy, his brother, Delane's himself, and how he empathizes with what Gabe's going through in a way that normalizes it. And then just the main lesson, which is to take the perspective of others, to walk in another person's shoes, to see what they're seeing, feel what they're feeling. And this is just in general, a fundamental category, if you will, of integral practice. Uh, We talk about it as perspective taking. One of the things that is a marker of integral consciousness is being multi-perspectival to be able to see from different perspectives. And we want to get good at it. And so that was a master lesson, if you ask me. All right. So now I want to get into a letter that I received a couple of days ago that I think really takes this even a little further. And, um, and it's by a listener who's a fairly new listener. Casey DeGurdis. He said, I've really been enjoying your podcast since I discovered it in December. I've listened to a number of your episodes now, and it's been fun to see the ways in which integral theory has meshed and matched with ideas that I've been playing around with myself. The one thing that has bothered me so far is the idea that previous iterations of society or civilization had a cap, so to speak a cap on their experience as far as the integral level of development is concerned. In other words, can we really safely assume that people living 10,000 years ago did not have any vibrations of what we now call higher levels? And this, it's a good letter and a good question because it gets to one of the common misunderstandings about integral theory. And, and it's a reasonable one in a sense. I mean, we talk so much about stages and moving from one stage to the other and show our charts and graphs and so forth. And it's easy to, you know, mistake the maps for the territory in the sense that we get this pers- perspective or this perception that we're moving in lockstep through these highly delineated stages. And that's really not true. A better way of, of looking at this is through the idea of this one center of gravity. And that although we can say that our center of gravity is at say modern um, altitude, we can see that we might have a cognitive line that's moving into the postmodern, a spiritual line that isn't traditional, an emotional (laughs) line that is down in the basement, an interpersonal line, a moral line that is that we are, you know, stretched out all over the spiral, but it adds up to a center of gravity around modern, which is where we're going to have, as Ken Wilber says, roughly 50% of our responses to life are going to come from modern, 25% from lower and 25% from higher. And so we have this probability cloud that really makes up our developmental stage. And that's also true of cultures. And so you get something like, you know, I talk about Philip Galanes and his uh, advice to this kid, and you realize that in a way, it's nothing new. It's just this, it's almost become a cliche. I remember my aunts and uncles talking about it when I was a kid, walk in another person's shoes, walk in another person's moccasins. You know, it was an old Indian saying, so they said, to walk in another person's shoes. But people 
in way earlier times have had that insight. And there's something about these higher insights that galvanize the rest of us. And we sort of intuit that they're true, even though we can't really do it very well. I was thinking about this, and it, it reminded me of a favorite book that I read years ago. It's called The Inheritors by William Golding. And it talked about Neanderthals and early humans. And there was a tribe of early humans that were, you know, what we would call the archaic or infrared stage of development, the early, you know, when we're just human beings are waking into self-consciousness. And there's a woman in this tribe, and she is more or less stably self-conscious. But her tribe mates come and go, including her mate. And just how sometimes she can contact him first person to first person, and sometimes not. He's just more of a force of nature. And, you know, this is fiction, and uh, you know, who knows how it really was, but that's plausible. And the way he develops it and shows it is really quite beautiful and heartbreaking. And we, again, we can see this also with cultures as well, that we have a culture like ancient Greece, where the center of gravity is in a way red. I mean, there are certainly a, a, lots of lines of development. They had slavery, they had pederasty, they had you know, all sorts of forced labor. They were uh, into basically constant warfare. And yet they were able to spike into modern thinking with science and mathematics and philosophy. And that's also true of Rome, where we had torture as entertainment, you know, in the Colosseum. And, and they'd have festivals where they would literally kill thousands of people and large animals from Africa, elephants and lions. I mean, it's horrifying to read about what they actually did in the Colosseum. And yet, one of the great philosophers that we read to this day is one of the emperors from that age, Marcus Aurelius. And he wrote, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. You know, that's an integral insight, certainly a postmodern insight. And he goes on, he says, the universe is change. Our life is what our thoughts make it. The object of life is not to be on the side of the majority, but to escape finding oneself in the ranks of the insane. If it's not right, do not do it. If it's not true, do not say it. You know, and that's just good philosophy for the ages. And, and it comes from a very civilized kind of sensibility. And yet this was the emperor who prosecuted four wars and programs of persecution against the Christians. And so, you know, the, the, from an integral perspective, what causes people to be able to move into these higher stages and, you know, have insights that are way out of whack with their center of gravity, there are two things. One is life conditions. This is the basic theory around, you know, why people rise to the center of gravity that they do. It's because of the conditions of their life. 
And in these early societies like Greece and Rome, and also there's societies like this in China and India and other parts of the world, where they had reached a level of complexity where they were able to support a small group of elites who were able to rise to higher stages. And that's amazing. And, you know, thank God they wrote it down and that we study it to this day. But it wasn't stable for the time because they were in a world that was the center of gravity of the planet was, you know, certainly in the warrior stages. And, um, and you know, when they fell because they weren't stable, the world went into decline. The Western world went into decline for a thousand years, dark ages. And was it uniformly dark? There were thriving subcultures of these elites in monasteries who were carrying on, but the world as a whole, you know, basically devolved for a thousand years. So life conditions is a big part of it. But I have to say, I have to add another piece to that. And that's what I'll just call karma. And that is this stream of, in my case, Jeffness, that survives lifetime to lifetime or something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but there's a stream of Jeffness. There's a stream of each of us. And some people just come into this world with capacities, potentials, uh, whatever, to see and do things that other people can't. And we call these people geniuses. We call these people saints. We call these people sages. And again, the rest of us know that they have something really special and they become beacons but we translate them and operationalize them at the stage of development that we're at, which, you know, could be a catastrophe. So we, you know, it, in Christendom, you know, we're, we're taught to love our enemies. We're taught to give everything we have to the poor and follow me, said Jesus. And uh, let's just say that we have executed that quite imperfectly over the years of Christendom and continue to, but yet, we still think that it's right. And that's cool. That's, that's, you know, sort of built in that we notice these bright lights that are beckoning to the future. So, you know, there was no cap on anything. And that really gets us into a spiritual lesson on the nature of things. And what is often seen as sort of the nature of ultimate reality is that it is some kind of polarity between the one and the many, between the creator and the creation, between, in Buddhism, form and emptiness. And, you know, my more recent training is in the Buddhist side of the street, the form and emptiness. And one of the things that's interesting about emptiness is that you know, it's actually not so empty, but it is also the world of infinite potentiality. You know, so there is this infinite oneness potentiality that holds everything. And there's this many that's sort of flying around and I'm doing my best to explain this thing that is not explainable by words and thoughts. But what's true about the world where there's this you know, polarity between the one and the many 
is that the person with the right kind of antenna and receptors, they can basically see anything. You know, it's all there already because the all is already there in its, you know, potentiality. And that works both ways that we can sometimes if we're equipped and if life conditions are right and if our antenna are there, we can spike into genius in various lines. And we can also uh, reintegrate the earlier stages in a way that's conscious and potent. And that is, um, you know, that's a really important realization and 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 let me develop it a little more by playing a recording by one of my listeners uh who talked about this and i wanted to just expand this idea of transcending and including through the prism of music there's something that we love about somebody who doesn't know how to play in any other way other than the way that they play and doesn't know anything other than what they know. And it has like a, a raw, real, genuine, specific sort of a feeling to it. Like, I don't know, my stock example is like a blues player who the pentatonic blues scale is that person's life. And they never went to Juilliard to study about non-functional atonal harmony like what we love about them is that they stay in that specific limited perspectival place um and it's almost like i i think i ask whether they need to stay there and whether by transcending and including and creating more space you create not only more space but more distance and when there's more distance between you and the expression and the art, is that a problem? And I guess the sort of space versus distance thing has been bothering me in, in all the domains that Integral claims to integrate um, because I sort of feel like, well, you now you're farther from this, you're farther from that, you're farther from this, you're farther from that. So where am I? What, what am I close to now? So I wonder if that makes sense to you, and I would love to hear a comment. All right. The short answer is you're, you're close to everything. You're closer to everything. And, um, you know, I love what you said there, Casey, about there's something that we love about someone who doesn't know how to play anything other than what they're here to play. And the real raw, genuine, specific quality, particular quality of that. And, you know, we talk so much about a bigger space of awareness and transcending and including. And when we're adding things to this bigger space, are we actually creating more distance between us and it? And this gets back to this paradoxical relationship between the one and the many. And to use your example, the blues player that plays his or her just particular thing and just brings that into being, which is what an artist does, that thing that they bring into being 
is a permanent acquisition for humanity. And it's a permanent acquisition for the cosmos, actually, too, but for sure for humanity. And to deeply appreciate it is not just about adding it to the space, but liberating it into the space. You can sort of feel the difference. And when you do that, when it's liberated into the space, it just becomes part of, you know, it, the whole. It's, it's just always there. It's always a part of you. It's always a part of everything. And the cool thing about a liberated space is whatever you need is available to you. It just automatically shows up. You don't have to go hunting for it. You don't have to travel through any distance to find it. It's right there. And you know, just to sort of continue with the music analogy. So, you know, as a practice, then we can listen to the music of every stage of development and, and feel it on its terms and listen to the music of every artist and hear it just for what they're bringing. And, you know, whether it's indigenous music, you know, to, to get into the bodies and the, the minds to feel that sort of civilizing quality of a Johann Strauss waltz, the rush of freedom and power that comes from a Beethoven symphony that sort of ushers us into modernity, and how all of those are just right there and available to us. Um, even though we might be able to slice and dice them and say, oh, that one came from here, and this one comes from there, and this one's this in this lineage, and this one's in that lineage, and all of that sort of thing. So... <laughs> So I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but that's my answer in in, in this one aspect. There's the, the, the it, it brings me to a, a teaching out of Buddhism that I find really helpful and really appropriate to this lesson here, this discussion. And the teaching is that for every spiritual lesson, first there's an outer aspect, then an inner aspect. And then a secret aspect. And every teaching has all three of those. And you can kind of kill the secret teaching if you overemphasize the outer teaching. Uh, the outer teaching is just where we try to explain it, like I just did. You know, and there's libraries written on the or, 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 about the idea that you can't say anything about ultimate reality or emptiness. You know, it's one of those funny things. But we do our best to describe it. So we talk about the one and the many, all that, whatever. And then there's an inner teaching. And this is where we feel it. And uh, it's a little more poetic, perhaps. So I might say is in the outer teaching that there's a paradoxical reality. There's a, uh, there's a positive polarity between the one and the many. And I could go on and talk about that for days. In the inner teaching, I would want to say something like, you are both the wave and the ocean. So you feel, feel the end of that. So you, you can't separate the wave from the ocean, but the, wind, but the wave is specific. It happens in time and space. It's particular. There's no two alike ever. And yet it's interpenetrated with the ocean. It's the same thing as the ocean. So you can sort of 
contemplate that. And then the secret teaching is how that all changes you. How by contemplating that and by grokking that in in an ever deeper way, that your world is re-enchanted. That you gain a new depth in life and your old identity is shattered in a good way, you know. So we get to the secret teachings through the outer and inner teachings. But then the outer and inner teachings have to be left behind. You know, as they say, you know, if you if you take a raft across the river, you don't have to keep carrying it. You leave it behind. And so it, it, I always love what Rilke said about loving the question. You know, that if you love the question itself, it's like working with a koan, then you work your way into an answer. And, um, or you love your way into an answer. And that's even better. All right, so I want to end this with a poem that I think sums this up beautifully. It's a perfect example of it. And it's a poem by one of the favorite poets in the integral world. If you went to integral events, you would often hear poems by Mary Oliver. And Mary Oliver died last week. And she was a favorite poet of everybody, uh, certainly Americans. She she won the Pulitzer Prize in 1984 for her book called American Primitive. And in a way, that's a, such a great description of what she was. She, she loved Whitman. She was in, the, in that lineage of Whitman of just celebrating the details of life in America, you know. And she definitely found the one in the many. And here's, here's one of her lines that I think really is so beautiful about how it sums it up. And it, it's also appropriate to her death happening last week. She wrote, when it's over, I want to say, <clears throat> all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. And I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. So the bride married to amazement, the amazing play of the million things and the bridegroom taking the world into his arms. So, so I'm going to read, I'm going to end with a poem that is one of the favorites that I read often at integral events. It's called the summer day by Mary Oliver and notice the outer inner and secret teaching of this poem. All good poems have that. So, you know, there's the actual words, there's the description, there's what's being described. Then there's the feeling of it, the sort of entering into it. And then there's the part where you just get goosebumps. It's like, whoa, that's the secret teaching. We want to go for the goosebumps. So here it is. The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? The grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, 
I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Thank you, Mary Oliver. And thank you, everybody, for tuning into the Daily Evolver. Jeff Salzman here. See you next time.